Britain Pierce School for Advanced Musical Studies, a training experience for performers transitioning from education to professional careers, celebrates 50 years this year with a concert in the 73rd Albra Festival. The school began modestly in the early 1970s with a series of masterclasses staged in the rehearsal room at Snape Malting's Concert Hall in East Suffolk, led by Benjamin Britten's lifelong partner, tenor Peter Piers. In the years that followed Britain's death, the success of these masterclasses with leading musicians of the time led to the conversion of one of the Malting's buildings into a permanent venue for masterclasses, study and rehearsals. Some of those who visited the Britain Peers School for Advanced Musical Studies over the years, now known as the Britain Peers Young Artist Programme, and some of those who worked there feature in this podcast, reflecting on what makes the location and the experience of studying and rehearsing there so very special. Check the notes to the episode for a list of all of the contributors to this thoroughly good classical music podcast celebrating 50 years of the Britain Peers Young Artist Programme. Britain's Peers School has a unique place in, in education, certainly in this country, and in many ways, given the breadth of its operation in the world. It's basically a school for people, they can be in another school, they can be have finished education, for developing you further, for taking you out of the rat race, which is one of the things that Britain wanted for Albrecht. He used to organise rehearsals and recording sessions across the middle of the day. Um, so that people would, they, in the old days, they couldn't drive out from London in the morning. They'd have to come the night before. They'd have to stay the night after so that they, <laughs> so that you could just experience that feeling of being there and hearing the wind in the rushes. Tell me what, what you know, it's clearly not, a, or at least when it was called school, it wasn't actually a school, was it? It performed No, it basically, so what, it, what my perception of it in my early 20s, for that's when I went there, was it was a place that... Uh, ran courses um, and I went along there and played on orchestral courses, mostly orchestral courses, but also chamber music courses, contemporary music courses, and I loved it. It is a magical place. Um, it, it's, it's a really bizarre thing in that it feels like you're in a different dimension, you're in a different kind of atmosphere that is separate from everything but at the same time it is so fundamental um, to the British music scene in itself so even though you feel like you're in this different world you're conscious that it's very much at the heart of the British classical um, world. highest international quality and when you take those qualities um, of pure dedication to music and you put them in a place that's so peaceful and so tranquil something about the cross-section of those two aspects is produces very very profound results in my experience Thank you. 
When did you first go to Snape? It must have been a Suffolk Youth thing, Suffolk Youth concert. And I think you come over that hill <clears throat> at the top of Snape and you, you see the two white bits on the top of the building. <laughs> what are they called? inland from Oldborough and it looks the concert hall is an old maltings building that sort of sits up proud in looking over reed beds and water and just because of the flatness of Suffolk it's sort of 90% sky it is the most magical magical place you know whoever you take there they they feel that you know a sense of being somewhere quite special. Yeah, I just remember thinking, oh, wow, look at that. I'd say a sort of beautiful isolation. I mean, it's, it's set, it's an old Maltings building, so it's, it's, uh, it was a, a repurposed building, the concert hall, um, but has a wonderful acoustic. You know, one of these bizarre things, that you, with these repurposed buildings, somebody, sometimes you end up with a much better acoustic than places are actually di- designed to to be performed in. What is the interior like? Describe the interior for somebody who hasn't seen it. Oh, of the actual concert hall? Yeah. Is brick, beautiful brick, old brick. I remember a lot of wood just talking about sounds i remember there was a lot of sort of sound in the in the roof so you could you sort of felt the wind somehow there and there was a sort of feeling of nature about the place um it's very simple um the chairs are not particularly comfortable <laughs> but and but i quite like that flippy chairs it's all very simple i like that though my sister's an architect and she still thinks or um, talks of it as being the best design acoustically for a concert hall. Um, so I, I, also they talk about the fact that there were two fires. Is it the double baking that has created such great sound? As, aside from the fact that it is just absolutely a wonderful acoustic, you do go in there thinking this is the place that that Britain chose for his pieces. So there is there is a bit of stardust in the air as well. Um, it's a bit like, I mean, I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to, to hold him up as, as any sort of messianic figure, but he is you know, one of the most important English uh, composers in the 20th century. Uh, and, and someone that really, I think, for, for all British musicians who really moved the focus back into the English-speaking world, uh, so I think I think it is to be able to go to the place that he created. It's not quite going to Mecca, but it is. <laughs> but it is. But it is important. I think. Yeah. It was a bare place. I mean, uh, the concert hall <laughs> was fairly stripped back. It was just wooden brick, but but also in the school in the in the building next door there was no 
It was really very, very simple. It was, and that, that was part of the attraction because for me, I'm easily distracted. So there were no distractions. I didn't have things to look at hanging on the wall and it was white walls mm. and a window overlooking the beautiful marshes. It's a little bit like now, stepping back in time is not quite it, but it is a place where you can imagine that not an awful lot has changed in the last 100, 150 years. Um, because when you arrive there, there is a different sort of atmosphere. You can look out across the marshes and see nothing. No cars, no sort of human existence apart from Icon Church in the distance. Uh, all you can hear is the the sound of the the rushes um, blowing around in the wind, um, bird calls, that sort of thing. It's a unique setting uh, for a concert hall. There's, there's nowhere else in the UK, and maybe nowhere else in the world, that is set in such a extraordinary rural location. was just uh, the most quirky, wonderful, magical um, kind of time capsule of a place um, with the most beautiful characters that, you know, it was almost like they'd been um, sort of just put, you know, kind of penned by some creative genius and you'd just walk down the street and you'd meet all these, you know, amazing people with all these musical histories and, and knowledge and, and connections. Um, but I just, I love the simplicity of it. I love the coastline. I love the fact that I could walk in to the Cross Keys pub and, um, you know, they pulled me a pint of Pepsi because they knew that's what I like to drink. Um, and, you know. How very, you, how very sensible, a pint of Pepsi. I'm not <laughs> going to have any of that beer stuff that you sell. <laughs> oh, I did have some beer, but, you know, <laughs> Mainly it was a good old kind of thing. I am Chiyu Mo and I am Principal E-flat clarinet in the London Symphony Orchestra. You've been doing it for 24 years. Well, that's right, yes. Yeah. When, when did you first do Britain Piers then? So, funnily enough, I had a bit of an overlap between being on trial for the LSO and doing Britain Peers. Um, so, I think I started doing Britain Peers when I was um, still at university. Um, so, but because my university uh, time took slightly longer than most people because I did... Um, scientific subjects oh, rather than music. Sound, you sound almost apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think I started in about 1993 um, in Britain Piers Orchestra um, when, when I was still doing chemistry. Um, and, then, um, and then I decided to change career and I went to the Royal Academy of Music in 95 to 96. Uh, and all all the time I was doing a bit Britain Britain peers, and um, then uh, I did an audition for the LSO at the end of 1996, and then I was on trial from then until I got my job 
in 98. So at what point were you were you trialling before you did Britain Peers then? I remember getting a phone call whilst I was doing a Britain Peers course to say that I had a trial somewhere. I think it was when I did a trial at Scottish Opera or something like that. So there was definitely this overlap. And that would have been a big deal then? Massive. <laughs> she yeah. says, closing down the conversation. <laughs> um, what yeah. what drew you to do Britain Piers? I know you'd already done Suffolk Youth, and I, and I get yeah. that. I get that. You know, the connection with Snape was probably established with, with Suffolk Youth. But what what benefit was Britain Piers at that point? The, you took the words out of my mouth. Really, it was the geography of where it was was is such a special place and. So that's the the immediate answer is just the geography of where where you were going to make music. Secondly, I knew that it was going to be of a top notch level and we were going to be given opportunities in surroundings and with conductors um, that were worth putting yourself slightly out because it wasn't the easiest thing to sort of fit in. And especially when you are, I think it was, I, I don't know when I started Britain Peers, but definitely during my time at Guildhall. And then, as I said earlier, when you're just transitioning from amateur to professional and learning what to say yes to and what to say no to, and having those moments of, if I say yes to that, is that going to impact any work I get? Because any crumbs you have to hoover up. Um, but so, yes, it was a priority. And it was also a, a great social thing. You were learning the ropes, not just of playing the notes in an orchestra, but the social um, the social scene. I mean, from, from my point of view, I really found it something of an oasis. Having studied at the Guildhall, which was a great school, uh, in London, but you know, very hectic, typical um, music college, typical London music college, um, where it's, it's very competitive, and you're rushing to get from A to B, and you've got the commute. But then to come to Albra, uh, to Snape, and just have time to to focus on one thing, um, and have the space not to worry about anything else was 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 really wonderful. I can tell you the function of it. Uh, as it was at that time, which was to bridge between um, third-level education, so university and college orchestra, and a professional orchestra. So rather than rehearsing over, say, a period of a term, the orchestra comes together um, at various times of the year, works very intensively with top artists and conductors for a short period towards uh, high-profile concert performance and broadcast as part of the Obra Festival, Snape Proms, uh, and other um, festivals at Obra and Snape. Uh, the only comparator, I think, was uh, around that time was the London Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. I'm not sure that happens now. No. Um, I can sort of see why it perhaps didn't happen um, with a lot of musicians trying to kind of carve out careers for themselves and try and find as much opportunity for paid work as they could, balancing that with final recitals and commitments at college. Um, I suppose that the odds are sort of stacked against it um, in terms of being able to bring together the right kind of calibre of players um, to find enough 
players of quality willing to just take themselves out of their normal existence uh, at college and early career and just commit themselves to something pure and different and geographically separate. Um, but all of those things were its, its kind of defining qualities for me, that you were taking yourself out of normal activity and surrendering yourself to, to something else totally different and separate from your normal existence. But at Preston Piers, uh, I, I had access to, to an incredible and wide variety of repertoire. Um, probably my, um, my favourite project of all was doing uh, Dialogue de Carmelite by Poulenc, which, which we're, luck, we're lucky enough to play in, um, in Albra and in London. Um, and uh, just incre incredible um, harmonies and, and melodies, and, but, but quite unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. Um, I, I remember in, in doing terms some, of it being unusual repertoire or because it challenged you? Um, mostly that it was an un, unusual repertoire, but, but completely brilliant repertoire. Uh, I remember doing a concert with um, lots of Henza, um, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah, I remember that. And of course, you know, there there was the emphasis on British composers as well, with 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 um, it being at the home of Britain and peers. So so yes, it was. I, I loved every moment of it, and it, it 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 gave me a real insight into what different sorts of repertoire orchestras can play. Well, my first course was a baptism of fire because it was Schoenberg uh, Chamber Symphony Number no. One with Paul Zukowski, um, and uh, I mean he was a, a, a an experience in and of itself. But the, he was he, quite demanding, as I he recall. He was very demanding, and he he didn't he, he was just like you know the the actually most of the stuff. In fact, all of it at Britain Piers, they never, ever treated you like, oh, you're a student, you're learning. No, we expect you to just do it, um, which is it was a breath of fresh air compared with some other um, kind of uh, student-based things where they kind of almost patronise you. But that, um, the Schoenberg, the bass part's fiendish, and it was like, <laughs> but uh, I somehow got through it. I learned so much about my myself that course and what I, I needed to do to be better. Um, he was very demanding. Incredibly demanding, mm. but um, I've worked with people since who are equally incredibly demanding and they, they know what they want and they expect the highest standards. Why shouldn't they? Mm. And that, that's what we're there to do, to play great music as best we can. Is great. 
experiences to young musicians on on the cusp of sort of their entry into the music profession so in and, and from all over the world so in that respect it sort of yeah it felt really important you know it felt like we were sort of at the end of the world <laughs> being a snake on our own <laughs> and yet these bits of the world were coming to us to have this extraordinary training from from musicians uh you know, with incredible wealth of experience and, and lots of them who'd worked with Britain and Pierce. So it, it sort of felt extraordinary. And I don't know if I felt that when I was there, but looking back, I now realise it was. Yes. It's, it, to me, it seemed a bit weird that it was just detached and it was, you know, we, we could have been working on a farm. That's, <laughs> that's how it felt. And yet there are all these sort of... Um, all these people who came, and particularly the teachers, and and you saw the looks on the faces of the students that made you go, "Wow, this this person, they're all in awe of each other." And I don't, I, I sort of don't understand why. And why are they here? We're working on a farm. That was yes. that was my impression <laughs> of it. And and I've sort of tried to tried to get that from other people, and they haven't quite they haven't quite got it. But maybe that's just something that you and I experienced. I learnt how much I still had to do to be able to turn myself into an employable musician uh, and there were it was three or four courses uh, orchestral courses and small ensemble courses before one of the tutors I remember him saying it to me saying he said you're ready to work you are now ready to work there are other people on this course who are not yet ready to work that was Fred um, on the Oliver Nusson 20th century oh i remember yes okay I, right that that was a big boost of confidence uh, but it was a while before i felt ready to work that i was both in sufficient technical command of what i was trying to do um and to have confidence in my own musical and technical abilities um and i think britain peers set me well on the road towards that I, I think that the, the thing that really remains with me from that thought I kind of really realised was this kind of common aim of, of wanting to do something really fantastic and that, that it was, uh, it, it, we, we were inspired to do that with the amazing people that we worked with there. So there's Sasha Schneider we, we, we worked with, I, I missed Britain. Um, he he died a, f a few years before I, I was there, but I remember Peter Pierce being around. I first went there to study um, on Bach courses, which were being run by Peter Pierce and Janet Craxton and uh, people like John Shirley Quirk and um, Nancy Evans and um, Heather Harper, actually. And we we would we would go because they were always about Bach and in those days there wasn't quite so much period instrument movement around so it was modern instruments and they would want oboes because Bach with voice often means oboe too and so I was I was able this was in the sort of early mid eighties when I was still a student 
and I would go and just sit and listen to Peter Pears give classes on the evangelist roles in the John and Matthew Passions. Um, and it, it, there were some of the most moving experiences. I mean, we would we would all go and hear his classes because whenever he talked about those works in particular, or even actually any, any Bach arias, um, it would always be something that was that you knew you knew you would get something from the thing is particularly after his stroke he would get quite emotional and upset about about the piece and about the music and almost be unable to express it so there was a sort of unspoken communication and i remember meeting tippet there as well you know and and I, i i was very very young at that time so I'd probably have been more impressed by that a few years on. So I, I, I do remember there was something incredibly special about these men, and they were they were elderly men, mm. but they, they there was a whole atmosphere around them of kind of reverence. And um, and Hugh Maguire, yes, he was a, a very lively, very enthusiastic, a very. Um, very funny i remember him being hilarious and um and he was sort of at the at the heart of it all and i was invited to audition at a place in hackney which i can visualize i can't remember the name of it and i played to hugh Maguire. and i remember playing brahms violin concerto in my audition which is ironic because i'm an oboist but i remember playing that because i remember hugh Maguire standing up and in the bar's rest singing the singing the flute line in the middle, and then I carried on. So it was almost like a sort of duet with Hugh McGrath. I I still remember that audition, which is, you know, I've done countless auditions since then. Um, And I still remember that audition because I played uh, Rachmaninoff's vocalese. And it was one of those times where I just clicked with the pianist. It was really enjoyable. Uh, to which she came out of the audition and said to me, I really love playing with you. I hope I get to do it again. And then it resulted in me um, uh, getting to play with Britain Peers and it was wonderful. On the first year of doing Britain Peers, I, I, I saw this guy in the canteen and I thought, gosh, he looks quite handsome. He'll never talk to me because I, I was so unconfident in myself. And I actually got him to go out with somebody else. Wow, wow, wow. What a strategy. Let's test him out with someone else first. I, I honestly didn't think he'd be interested in me. And we got chatting and things changed, the situation changed, <laughs> and uh, we got married in Albra about six years later. You also met your wife there. I did meet my wife there. And you yes. also got married. I mean, I only mentioned, I just want to confirm that because she mentioned it in her interview. It would be weird if you didn't, if you didn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, someone is going to go... Hang on a minute, yeah. he didn't mention it, yes. And I think because of that, there is still, there will always be something that feels like coming home when we go to Snape, when we go to Aldborough. Um, it, it's a place that we both feel a very, very deep 
connection with, uh, and even now with our children, because they've been three or four times as well. Uh, and it, I suppose we've sort of lapsed into becoming one of those families that have those little sort of, those little rituals. And one of the rituals has now been to go down to the Maggie Hambling scallop uh, and the kids stand on the scallop and have their picture taken and you're able to kind of combine it to, to sort of look back across the years. Who is your favourite uh, landlady? My favourite landlady, who I think I stayed with three or four times, was called Sylvia Roberts. <laughs> and I don't, I, I don't know if she's still around. I hope she is. Wow, but that name, that name, that, that, <laughs> that just takes me right back. I mean, I, I didn't meet Sylvia Roberts. I have no idea what she was like. <laughs> but but uh, everybody reported how they had really good breakfasts. Did you have a really good breakfast? I, I certainly had a good breakfast there yes but we, i also remember being locked out one oh, oh did you yes. arrive did, did you did, did you make it back late is that what you're saying um yes i'm sure it was and an not the host's fault at all but <laughs> yes um i think three of us um staying with her had turned up slightly later than perhaps we'd intended and um to find that she'd left the the mortise key in the door so we couldn't get <laughs> our oh my key god, oh my god. <laughs> and, what um, did you do my my two colleagues who were smaller than me tried to climb in through this open window but couldn't get through and, and so we finally decided to to um brave it and and try and wake our host up uh, which she she did. Uh, she did you are looking and, really nervous now. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, she was she was so sweet and apologised profusely for leaving the key in the door. Right, right. Um, which okay. she really didn't have to do. She could quite easily have um, sent yes. us packing and saying, "What what on earth do you think you're doing at this hour?" So yes, she was very sweet, and, and uh, I think she even said, "I'm going to go back to bed now, but." Um, the, if you would like some toast, <laughs> please help oh, yourselves well, well, the kitchen. <laughs> so, that's, yeah. that's really sweet. So, one, yeah. sorry, I have to ask this question because I know that other people will expect it, but were you one of those guests who would require a feather pillow or a foam pillow? Would you have been happy with a foam pillow? Oh, I would have been happy with any pillow. That yeah. is why you were invited back time after time. <laughs> really? No, it's <laughs> not. No, it's really not. <laughs> no, it's really not. <laughs>